This is episode 55 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 55 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the Center. In this episode, we welcome Center Director O. Carter Sneed back to the podcast to discuss his award-winning book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. We chat about the understanding of human flourishing that underscores American law and policy on abortion, artificial reproductive technologies, and end-of-life issues. Let's sit down together for this wide-ranging and fascinating conversation. Well, Professor Carter Sneed, welcome back to the podcast. So your book, What It Means to Be Human... The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. What is the premise of this book? There are, there are two premises. There's a methodological premise and then there's a substantive, well, claim. The premise of the book, the methodological premise of the book is that the richest way to understand issues of public bioethics, that is the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology in the name of ethical goods, the richest way for anybody to kind of understand these issues to uh, position yourself to critique them or to uh, support them, these different positions that laws and policies reflect, is through the lens of what I call anthropology. And that's not meant in its modern sense as an academic discipline. It really is meant in the sense of its original meaning, simply what it means to be and flourish as a human being. And I argue that the richest point of entry into this area of law and public policy uh, is anthropological because law at bottom aims to promote and protect persons. So the law has to have an operating premise as to what a person is and what human flourishing is. Otherwise, we would never be able to determine whether or not the law was accomplishing its ultimate goal, which again is to protect persons or to promote their flourishing. So to understand the law most deeply and richly, you have to ask the question, what vision of the person, what vision of the human being and human flourishing are underwriting, anchoring, and animating the legal framework? And so I take that that approach, that analytic approach, what I call an inductive anthropological analysis. And all I mean by inductive is taking the law as you find it, right? Not beginning with a set of premises and reasoning deductively from them, but saying, what is the current law of abortion? What is the current law in America relating to assisted suicide? Or obviously that's a state question, so there are multiple laws on on that front. Or what does the legal landscape look like with respect to assisted reproductive technologies? And what I try to do in the book is to drill down to the foundational level of anthropology and say, here's the vision of human personhood and human flourishing, human identity that is underwriting these particular vital conflicts of public bioethics. That's the methodological claim. The substantive claim of the book is when you do that, when you apply that analysis to these three vital conflicts, what you find, what comes to the surface is a vision of the human uh, and human flourishing 
that is flattened and impoverished and not suitable to be a ground for law and policy in this area because that anthropology, which I describe uh, as expressive individualism following social scientist Robert Bella and um, Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor and Alistair McIntyre and others, uh, that's a vision of the human person and human flourishing that only captures a sliver of who and what we are and what we owe to each other and is and is not capable of seeing the full picture uh, of our vulnerability, our, uh, our, our mutual indebtedness to one another, our subjection to natural limits, uh, all of which emerge uh, as part of the essential reality of our embodiment. That is that we live as bodies. We negotiate the world as bodies. We experience ourselves and one another as bodies. And that's why the title of the subtitle of the book is The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics because the anthropology of expressive individualism as applied to these three vital conflicts is, to borrow McIntyre's phrase, forgetful of the body. It doesn't understand what the body is, what role it plays, and as a result uh, goes quite wrong uh, in these vital conflicts. Well, the book's title talks about the meaning of humanness or humanity, and yet you've even in your answer there kind of explained or mentioned personhood a lot. What's the relationship between the two? Yeah, Alistair McIntyre once told me walking in the hallway that he was against personhood and I uh, and I think I agree with him. Uh, what he means or what I took him to mean in that context is that the, con- the philosophical concept of personhood has been used for sure in the context of bioethics as a tool of exclusion to try to draw – to divide the world up um, of human beings into those that count and those that don't count. And if you count and you have – human rights and you're an object of moral concern, you are a person. So it's a kind of label for those human beings that we care about and those that don't uh, uh, don't receive that label uh, exist at the sufferance of others, can be used and, and killed with impunity. And and so I agree with Alistair that I'm, I'm not I, – I don't support the idea that there is – uh, there are some persons that are some human beings that aren't persons, uh, that there are pre-personal human beings or post-personal human beings. And as I argue in the book, and this is actually, I think, can be laid at the feet of expressive individualism. When you understand a person through the lens of expressive individualism, it becomes this, the, 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 the classification becomes very narrow because who counts as part of the moral and legal community through the lens of expressive individualism are only those people who have the capacity to flourish under that framework and that is those people who can uh, cognitively uh, interrogate the depths of their interior selves, find the authentic and original and maybe transgressive truths inside and then project that truth or those truths into the universe, configure their life plans accordingly and follow those life plans. That's what flourishing is under expressive individualism. It, it doesn't. It only understands man th- and, and woman through a cognitive lens. It only understands them as atomized individual wills who have instrumental bodies, instrumental relationships. Everything else is inchoate. Everything else is is to be bent uh, to the projects of the will. Uh, and that is for anybody who thinks for a few minutes about the arc of what a human life looks like. That that misses really most of what it means to be human. And so I do use the word personhood because that's sort of the, the nomenclature uh, of, uh, of, of public bioethics and frankly the law more generally. But I worry about the word person and the concept that the word person denotes because it has been used as a tool of exclusion to, to, to segment uh, the, that portion of humanity that gets human rights and, and moral concern and those that don't. We're kind of bound to the language 
by the 14th Amendment, among others, correct? It's, the, the 14th Amendment certainly uses that word and it, it, it played a significant role in the in – the, uh, and does play a significant role in American abortion jurisprudence uh, where Justice Blackmun famously said as a matter of constitutional interpretation, not broader moral theorizing, but that as a matter of constitutional interpretation that the word person doesn't include unborn children. And I should say that uh, John Finnis, who is a, a, a permanent senior research fellow of the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture, both wrote some very interesting pieces uh, in First Things, making the historical case, uh, arguing that in fact the word person in that context, as originally understood, uh, does in fact include everyone who is a human being. So it's an interesting and provocative argument that he makes, and I, I would suggest that everybody who's interested in these things should should check it out. What has the reaction to your book, Ben? It's been very gratifying. So the the uh, the book was named one of the top 10 or the 10 best books of 2020 by the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's been reviewed uh, in the journal uh, and, and many, many other places, and that's been great. It's gotten a lot of attention. And so I've been very grateful for the the attention that it's been given. I recently gave the um, the Shapiro lecture at Princeton University, uh, the, the the inaugural uh, Shapiro lecture, uh, which uh, of course Harold Shapiro, former president of Princeton, uh, looms large in the bioethics landscape. Was the chairman of uh, President Clinton's National Bioethics Advisory Committee, and so the the lecture is honored, uh, or sorry, is named in his honor. So I've been doing a lot of book talks, getting a lot of reviews, which has been gratifying, and I would say. One of the things that's been especially gratifying is the reaction it's gotten across the sort of ideological spectrum. The book is written in a way that is meant to uh, appeal to but also challenge people from all different points on the ideological spectrum in the United States. It has challenging things for conservatives. It has things that conservatives are going to like. It's got challenging things for people who identify themselves as liberal or progressive, but it also has things in there for them to like. Um, and so it's it's a little bit out of the box. And so I've been happy that that has been the way it's been received thus far. Has there been any pushback or what's kind of some of the questions that get asked of you? Yeah. So, I mean, in the book, the book is really, I mean, the book has a lot of science in it. It's got a lot of philosophy in, in it. It's got uh, even some some reflections on uh, literature and poetry and and uh, novels and so forth. But really- And The Office. And The Office as well and, <laughs> and uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> and so it's got a lot going on, um, but ultimately it's a book about the law. And it's a criticism, a uh, pretty strong criticism of the uh, of the current law of abortion and assisted reproduction and end of life decision making in the United States, uh, arguing that again that it's founded uh, each one of these areas is founded in um, a kind of false anthropology. And just to be clear, the, the false anthropology is what underwrites the law. It's not meant as a criticism of people and their own motivations and their own. Uh, intentions in these particular areas. It, it, the, the fundamental point is if the law is going to protect people correctly, if the law is going to provide for their flourishing and provide for their needs, it has to have a true understanding of what a person is and what we owe to each other. And expressive individualism is so myopic that it that it's it's an unsuitable foundation. And so what you end up with laws that are built on this foundation of expressive individualism is a is a mismatch between the reality of a patient, for example, suffering at the end of his or her life, or a, 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 an individual or a couple seeking to become parents and who are struggling with infertility, uh, or even people who are uh, confronted with an unplanned 
pregnancy and are, are considering an abortion. I'm not talking about the intentions of those folks. In fact, to the contrary, I'm saying the law is providing something to the people in those situations that is not the full reflection of what they need or even want because the frailty, vulnerability, um, subjection to natural limits and so on that those people are experiencing are not recognizable or intelligible through the lens of expressive individualism. And so what I argue in the book is we, had, we need a, what's called an anthropological augmentation to try to see what embodied beings need. I'm, you know, We are not merely minds and wills. We are also not merely bodies. We're the dynamic uh, integrated unity of those two things. And as such, we need certain things. And the principal thing that we need are what McIntyre calls networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. We need networks of people who are willing to make the good of others their own good uh, without seeking anything in return. And of course, the pristine example of this is the relationships of, of, between parents and children. Expressive individualism doesn't really know what to say about parenthood or children other than that parenthood can be a, something that a person gets a lot of fulfillment from in their own life plan. But that's not what it means to be a parent, and that certainly that's not what it means to be a child, to be a tool of someone else's fulfillment. Um, Children are gifts and should be received as gifts. And when you take on board the full reality of what these networks require to build them up and to sustain them, uh, uh, what you need are people, as I said before, who are willing to go out there and practice certain kinds of virtues uh, of just generosity, of hospitality, of misericordia, that is accompanying other people in their suffering, as well as what McIntyre calls the virtues of graceful receiving, namely gratitude and humility and solidarity and respect for the intrinsic equal dignity of everyone, honesty, uh, openness to the unbidden, and uh, tolerance of imperfection. These are what McIntyre calls the virtues of acknowledged dependence. Um, expressive individualism is all about liberation and independence uh, and imposing your will on the world and bending the world to your will, whereas a full framework of of, of, of an anthropology of embodiment understands both the freedom that expressive individualism reflects, but also the the dependence and the mutual um, vulnerability that we all have, and it, and and that's the, that's the story of the human contexts in which these questions of abortion and assisted reproduction and end of life decision making emerge. And so I argue that the law is mismatched. The law doesn't give people what they need because it's assuming things about them that are only partially true. I mean, it is true that we're free and that we're particular, but that's not the whole truth about us. And it's the what we're what it's what expressive individualism misses that leads us to um, not recognize our own vulnerability, not to recognize vulnerable others, including children and the elderly and the disabled. Uh, and that's why we need this anthropological augmentation. But back to your question, what have, has there been any pushback? Well, some of the pushback has come from – I mean sort of respectful pushback has come from saying, well, um, how, do you, how do you make people – practice virtues with the law. How do you – I mean what I argue in the book is by virtue of our embodiment, I mean if you look at all those virtues and uh, both of uh, graceful receiving and, and, and uh, uncalculated giving, they're all the virtues of friendship, right? It's all the practice of friendship. And so what I argue in the book is that by virtue of our embodiment, we're literally made for love and friendship. And so well, how do you force people to be friends with each other? You can't – the law can't force people to be friends with each other. And I say, well, of course the law can't do that. But one of the things that you'd draw critics' attention to, one would, is the fine-grained and broad and full-spectrum 
of opportunities the law has to shape behavior and to uh, both in a positive way and a negative way, as well as to teach, simply to teach people about what is valuable, what's noble, uh, what's ignoble, what's, what's fearful, what we should avoid. And obviously, the law can also create vast spaces for private ordering, where people can, in voluntary associations or in churches or in families, practice these virtues and take care of one another in these ways. And so I don't take a position in the book about how aggressive government should be in regulating everybody's lives in these ways, but I do make the point, and and so that is probably welcome to conservative readers. I say that there is, in fact, opportunities and sort of principles of subsidiarity, the idea that we should let people care for one another within a framework of free private ordering. But – and this is the part where I think liberals and progressives find something to like in the book. I say, but when those things break down or people are not willing or able to protect the the weakest and most vulnerable, then the government does have to step in and does have to protect people from – certainly from private violence uh, and from exploitation and other sorts of um, extractive behaviors that we see uh, across the history of public bioethics. Wow. That's – I mean that's a lot to think about and – it kind of leads to the next question is, this book is a diagnosis of the situation. Where do we go from here, though? Because it seems to me that, like, you can read the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision, and clearly expressive individualism is the underlying principle, I mean, right there. How do we change that yeah. among the whole world, well, among the whole nation? Well, it's a great, great question. I, I take up three vital conflicts in American law and policy, um, abortion, uh, assisted reproductive technologies and end-of-life decision-making and assisted suicide. And the good news on the latter two, assisted suicide, end-of-life decision-making and assisted reproductive technology is that we as a people have the freedom to govern ourselves in these areas so we can have these conversations. We could have a conversation at the state level and say, is it really the case that what a person needs when they're suffering and perhaps nearing the end of their life is to be left alone and to have the freedom to impose their unencumbered will Or are people who are suffering and vulnerable, do they need care and concern? And especially those people who have lost the capacity to make their own medical decisions, as we see in the end-of-life decision-making context. And I argue that as currently configured, the legal framework for those particular areas tends to prioritize and privilege autonomy, self-determination, and and leaves people to their rights and it sort of in some ways abandons them to their rights as opposed to caring for them in the right way. And that's not to say that autonomy and self-determination is not important in that context. I think that it is, uh, nor is it to say that we shouldn't honor people's wishes, uh, which I think we should in large part. But I think that that, there, that should be one aspect of a, of, a, of a broader conversation about what's in the best interest of the patient that we have in front of us right now. Assisted reproductive technologies is characterized by the absence of law. There's basically almost no limits on what a person or people can do to make a baby. And uh, you can fracture all the previously integrated parts of human procreation into, you know, uh, you, you could ultimately have five people who are the, who are the parents of a, uh, a, a, of a newborn child. You could have, you know, two gamete donors. You could have a gestational surrogate. You could have two rearing parents. And that's not even to include the technicians that actually accomplish all of these interventions uh, in the lab. And that transforms the, the meaning of parenthood and threatens the meaning of childhood. And, and, but the good news is that in that context, we can have these conversations. And some states do recognize that the goal of this process should always be 
uh, the birth of a child who is welcomed and loved unconditionally uh, by her parents. And certain kinds of practices may be problematic for that goal, and perhaps laws and regulations should be cognizant of of practices that like sex selection or or buying and selling embryos in batches for the sake of trying to create offspring of a certain type uh, or quality assurance and quality control in the surrogate context or, or commodifying and commercializing the body. Just to take a few obvious examples that are uh, antithetical to, to the goal of the birth of a child who will be welcomed and loved unconditionally and regarded as an equal to his or her parents, a child who is, in the word of Gil Mylander, quoting a higher authority, begotten and not made. Uh, and there's, so we can have those conversations. You gave the example of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, though. The bad news is that in the abortion context, we don't have that freedom to govern ourselves. Uh, in 1973, the Supreme Court took that right away from the American people and arrogated to itself the authority to be the sort of abortion regulation committee of last resort for the United States of America under a very spurious interpretation of the 14th Amendment. And now, as of uh, a week ago or so, the U.S. Supreme Court has granted cert to review a Mississippi law, a 15-week ban on abortion, that squarely presents the question whether of whether or not the states can regulate abortion, even ban abortion categorically prior to viability. And that, that's, a, that's a question that, that is going to require the justices to grapple with Casey and Roe and I think presents a very, very good opportunity for them to, to, to right the wrong of Roe and Casey and to say that no, in fact, the Constitution doesn't forbid the states from protecting unborn children and opening up the possibilities of caring for their mothers and their families rightfully. I mean, the, the whole framing of the abortion question, uh, as, as per these Supreme Court precedents, is a kind of narrative of conflict uh, between strangers. The mother and the unborn child are reconceived as atomized individual strangers fighting one another over the scarce resources of the mother's body and future. And, and even worse, the unborn child, uh, the status of the unborn child is is by fiat, by the Supreme Court, that of subpersonhood, right? Not a person, not a legal person, not a moral person. And therefore, which explains why we have basically abortion on demand in the United States um, through nine months of pregnancy. It's complicated for how the mechan mechanics of that, uh, but I explain it in the book. I do a sort of painstaking historical analysis of the – and anthropological analysis of American abortion jurisprudence. And so what, what one hopes is that the Supreme Court will now take this opportunity to overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And the most likely grounds on which they'll do that, if they do it, is to say that the, the Constitution is silent on the matter and return the question to the states. They probably won't take the view – and this is a prediction, not a normative endorsement of this approach – but they probably won't, as no justice has ever seemed to entertain the argument that my colleague John Finnis has made. So they probably won't say that the word person includes unborn children and therefore unborn children must be uh, have the equal protection of the law by operation of the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, they probably won't draw that conclusion. And so the matter will likely return to the political process where we can have these conversations and say, no, in fact, the relationship between unborn child and mother is not one of strangers, atomized adversarial strangers, but rather it's a relationship of mother and child. And when a mother and a child are in distress, we react very differently than we do when we hear that two strangers are fighting over scarce resources. Right? We come to their aid. We say, a mother and a child need our help. And so every resource we have is turned 
to, to render aid and comfort and care. And that's one thing, ironically, that Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey have cut off. They've, they've created this adversarial relationship and they've led us to conclude that the mother should be left alone in her stress and in her angst and in her vulnerability because she has the right to choose and that's all she needs. But anybody who uh, has loved someone who has been pregnant or someone who's ex- experienced a stressful situation in that regard knows that that's not a humanly accurate description. Those are the occasions that call for these just generosity, hospitality, and accompaniment, truly. Exactly. Yeah. This book seems like it would fit perfectly in the center's book series, Catholic Ideas for a Secular World. I was reading it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I noticed a single overt reference to scripture or theology or anything like that, you know, and you were quoting the Psalms. I think I quote St. Augustine one time, too. <laughs> but sure. uh, yeah. So, but but yeah no you're right I and mean, you're exactly right so the book is framed and is intentionally written in a way that the premises and again the book is not meant as a as a as a demonstrable philosophical proposition right I argue in the book that if you think about if you reflect on your lived experience if you reflect on what it means to be an embodied being and to live among embodied beings then certain things become immediately clear. Again, our mutual dependence, our vulnerability, our subjection to natural limits, and what we require for flourishing is the love and concern of other people, right? And so that situates – our embodiment situates us in a kind of relationship to one another where we have – where we – our very lives depend on the beneficence of others, uh, learning to what we're – learning what we're supposed to become uh, by participating in these networks of giving and receiving. That is to learn how to become someone who can make the good of another your own good. Learning how to be a friend in the richest and deepest sense is what it is that we're supposed to become. And when we become these sorts of folks, we shore up and sustain these networks and we also guarantee their, their, their continued existence, then we also become more fully human. We're most human when we're taking care of each other. But you could say that in the following way. You can say that, that what you're supposed to do, what you're called to do is love your neighbor the way you love yourself. And you could say that the greatest icon of that is the Good Samaritan. And so everything I say in the book is is resonates with and is perfectly consistent with the richness of the Catholic moral and intellectual tradition, which shows how beautiful a tradition it is and how universal uh, the tradition is. And, um, and it fits very squarely within what we do at the De Nicola Center to promote authentic human flourishing and to build a culture of life. Well, where do you go from here? What are you writing next? Well, it's a great question. I'm working on some shorter pieces connected to the upcoming abortion case, which will be heard next term uh, in in the October uh, 2021 term, Uh, working on uh, explaining and trying to explain the errors of Roe and Casey and explaining uh, the ways in which those errors can be corrected. Uh, There's a lot of misinformation out there about what these cases stand for, what the likely consequences of their overruling will be, uh, a parade of horribles. Uh, There's this movement underway to change the composition of the Supreme Court in anticipation of this decision. And I think it falls to scholars of the law, especially here at Notre Dame and elsewhere, to correct those misimpressions and to educate the public. Uh, but longer term, I'm working on – so this book was called What It Means to Be Human. I'm, I'm working on a book now tentatively entitled Who Counts as Human? Cases of Ambiguous Humanity, uh, involving very hard questions about how we draw the lines of the moral and legal community in light of very challenging biotechnologies and biomedical advances. And I take three cases, what I call the hard cases, the harder cases, and the hardest cases. The hard case is 
human beings that are engineered, uh, not conceived through uh, normal or natural means, not even conceived through IVF, but conceived through, you know, uh, kind of more uh, invasive and novel forms of genetic uh, engineering and and through the tools of synthetic biology and such like. Those are hard cases. Uh, who are these? Who or what are these entities? What do we owe to one another? The harder cases are the cases of of animal-human intermixing, chimeras and hybrids. Uh, how should we think about the uh, entities, hum- beings that are created through the admixture of human and non-human biological materials? And then the hardest cases are what I call modular human beings, where we're creating parts of humans that are structurally and functionally active, but without the rest of the body that we're used to. And the most extraordinary example of this are what are called cerebral organoids, creating a, a brain, a structurally and functionally active brain without a body. What, what is that? Who is that? And how should we think about it? And I'm going to draw upon the arguments of the book, this first book, um, The Anthropology of Embodiment, to think about who we are, what we owe to each other, to try to shed some light on those questions. Well, Carter Sneed, congratulations on this book and uh, good luck writing. Thank you, Ken. Thank you to Professor Carter Sneed. In the show notes, you will find links to his book, What It Means to Be Human, some reviews of the book, and a video presentation that he did for the DeNicola Center's Student Soren Fellows, exploring some themes in his book. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. Good decisions.